Hey guys, this is Hunter Levine, and thank you for listening to the Captain's Collective Podcast. Brought to you by Skinny Water Culture, Florida Fishing Products, Turtle Box Audio, Costa Sunglasses, and Orvis Fly Fishing. Last year, while chasing redfish and ducks in Texas, I got the opportunity to meet today's guest, Mason Matijic. Mason chose to pass up on going to college in order to pursue becoming a guide at the age of 18. Eight years later, and he's built a great business offering redfish and waterfowl charters. In this podcast, Mason shares with us about his upbringing and mindset as a younger guide who's working hard to build up his business. Mason has been surrounded by some incredible friends and mentors, including a few of our former guests, JT Van Zant, Jocko Lucas, and Owen Gaylor. If you haven't checked those out yet, and you're in the mood for some more Texas, make sure to give those a listen. I had a great time chatting with Mason about his life and love for the water. We hope that you enjoy. Thank you for listening. This is the Captain's Collective. All right. Well, hey, Mason, thanks for sitting down and giving me some time on this new series we're doing called Young Guns. And I'm excited just to get a little bit more of your story and hear about everything you got going on in Texas. Um, I've recently been able to come over a few times and I really am starting to love the place. And before we dive in, just give us a rundown about what all your operation looks like, where you're located, all that. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to doing this. So I started guiding fly fishing around eight years ago. And I would say, I think this will be my fifth duck season guiding duck hunts. So kind of bounce back and forth between the fishing and the hunting. Um, I've also got a lease in Oklahoma that I try to go to a couple times a year. Um, But right now I'm stuck in fishing mode. I'll start duck hunting once November comes around. Um, We Mm. started, last weekend we had Baracho. And I know you came down here, what was that, two years ago for that tournament? Uh, I was down last year. Last year, yeah. Yeah, I was yeah. down last year. And then I came down, too, and we got a duck hunt together uh, for the all-hands event, which was a lot of fun, too. Yeah, yeah, that was a good one. I hope y'all didn't drink too many all-hands. <laughs> no, nah, I uh, I kept it real safe. I kept it real <laughs> safe. <laughs> sweet, sweet. Um, yeah, so we just wrapped up Baracho this weekend, and as always, man, it was a blast. Those guys do an awesome job with that tournament. I always look forward to it. Um, mm-hmm fishing was a little tougher my boat actually broke down on day one so after after i got in i was hunting for a new one and finally finally found one that i could borrow and got back at it on day two um caught a ton of fish just not the ones we needed Mm-hmm. Wait, where, now where are you primarily located out of in rockport um I, man, I do 90% of my trips out of Rockport. Every once in a while, I'll venture over to Port O'Connor and go bother Yako and Owen. But, mm-hmm. <laughs> but most of the time, I'm, I'm over here. I live in Rockport, so I can be at the ramp within within five minutes. Mm-hmm. And for you, what, what does duck season look like guiding ducks for maybe those who aren't familiar? Man, so I do all of my duck hunts out of an airboat, and... I. I don't really have any permanent blinds out in the marsh. I typically do what they call run and gun style. So find birds, take a portable blind that I carry in my boat, set that up early in the mornings. Um, I've got some plastic floors that I keep in the boat that I can set up. That way you're not wallowing around in the mud. Um, 
but our season runs from the first of November to typically the last Sunday in January. So, man, once duck season rolls around, I'm pretty much hunting every single day. Mm-hmm. And how many people do you usually take out? Um, what What's the length? Do you do cast and blast? Kind of what's that general rundown like? What's a day, a general day look like? So I can take up to six or seven people. Um, typically, you know, I'm going to meet my clients at the boat ramp around 515. And by six o'clock, we're pretty much set up, ready to roll. Um most of my runs you know we're running out in the dark and so most of my runs are 30 minutes or less i try to not go too far um but man it's it, it's a lot of work but i love to do it i've got a i got a black lab that i take with me everywhere i go his name is Riggs. me and Riggs, we once duck season rolls around we hit it hard and try to try to kill as many as we can <laughs> Yeah, I, I got a chance to watch him work, which was great. And I think that's a big part that people would just enjoy, you know, to see a dog go and retrieve. And and uh, I think it's a, a, a really a really cool thing to be able to do the fishing and the hunting. Probably, I'm guessing, a pretty good mix-up for you as far as, you know, you fish all year and then you get kind of 90 days there or whatever it ends up being um, to do something a little different. is. It, are the hunts, you know, usually just uh, done before lunch? Yeah, so so like I said, we're normally set up about 15 or 20 minutes before shooting light rolls around, which is 30 minutes before sunrise. Mm-hmm. And we'll hunt till about 9.30 or 10 and then call it a day. Um, a lot of times I will take out an evening group as well. So if mm-hmm. I do that, you know, I'm... I'll go eat me some lunch, gas the boat back up, and be at the ramp by about one o'clock. And in the evenings, you know, we'll hunt till till sunset, and then and then come back in. And for you, as you transition into from ducks to you know to fishing, back from fishing to ducks, you know, I would imagine that the pattern, as far as like the the mix of scouting and executing with clients is pretty similar but how do you try to get into that mindset of locating ducks and kind of what's your mentality on scouting and how's maybe it different than fishing so leading up to to opening day you know I'll, I'll scout for man nearly every day for about a week and then once once duck season starts you know I'm on the water so much that I don't really have to worry about scouting I can kind of do it while I'm out there hunting and so that mm-hmm. makes it nice you know you're not burning as much gas and wearing yourself out and you don't like a lot of outfitters have to have somebody that strictly scouts for them and so i can kind of just do it all by myself right there while i'm while i've got clients with me yeah so you're making predominantly small shifts from day to day yeah i mean like if i if i set up and i just don't kill anything at all like it's a slow day you know i'll I might move 15 or 20 miles one way or the other from from that area. Mm-hmm. But typically most of it's going to be done within probably a 10-mile radius. Yeah. And ha- with your with your red fishing, you said that you do 90% out of the same ramp too. Is what's kind of for you 
is there a is there a reason that you like to keep it really tight to home or is what's the thought process there yeah i mean being that i live literally like two minutes from the boat ramp it it makes it nice you know i can wake up and and be there in no time but man from where i from where i put my boat in the water at i mean i can literally be in port o'connor in 45 minutes or i can be in port aransas in 30 so Mm -hmm. it's it's a good good middle point to to have where you can hop back and forth between like san jose island and matagorda island Mm -hmm. and how did you how did you end up in that area what what what's your connection kind of walk me through kind of the childhood to being located where you're at and running the operation you're doing yeah yeah so when when i was a kid i would i would normally fish out of a little town called austwell and if you shot straight across the bay from Austwell, you're going to end up like between San Jose Island and Matagorda Island. So just be, being that I grew up fishing out of Austwell and hunting out of Austwell, it kind of just gave me a sense of everything. You know, my dad, my dad doesn't trout or my dad doesn't fly fish. He normally just trout fishes. And so growing up as a fly fisherman, it was kind of hard to to do that with him because you know he's wading out on a reef in the middle of the bay or wading mm-hmm. 200 yards off a shoreline trying to catch trout and he would always mm-hmm. get mad at me because i'd take off and go try to get in a back lake to catch some redfish and he'd always he'd always have to come pick me up and he'd be like damn it boy i quit i told you to quit going that far <laughs> but, <laughs> but no man it just i don't know being that i found this house over here by by goose island it made it nice because i kind of i just knew everything around there so a lot of times during the summer i'll venture over to port o'connor and go try to target jacks and bull reds more and then do that early in the morning and then after that go pull around the flats for redfish so it's not like all of my it's not like everything i do is out of out of goose island i i venture around and for you, you said as a kid that your dad predominantly did the waiting for trout, which mm-hmm. I've found to be not as popular outside of Texas, the whole waiting for trout thing. Um, you know, uh, we have lots of people who love trout fishing, but there's definitely a unique style in Texas. And so your dad was doing that and you got into fly fishing, but where did the fly fishing piece get introduced to you? Was there a person or something that kind of triggered that yeah so i grew up in gonzales texas which is like two hours north of where i live now and we had the guadalupe and the san marcus river there and so i just my grandpa got me into fly fishing he gave me my first fly rod when i was like six and so i'd go bass fish on the rivers and man you know every weekend it seemed like we were down here at the coast fishing and so eventually i kind of graduated from the wade fishing and started fly fishing and man hit the ground running and hadn't stopped since then Mm -hmm. and you said you also did a little bit of hunting growing up did you have a pretty holistic upbringing with all that what was that like yeah so i grew up on 25 acres that was about a mile from the san marcus river and we'd get a lot of deer on the property during during the rut those bucks would come up from the river chasing does and so deer hunted quite a bit when i was little but i'm gonna say i was probably 10 or 12 years old i got my first shotgun and we had a couple stock ponds on our place and one morning i was doing something and there was about 30 ducks that picked up from the tank 
and so the next morning i went and sat at the tank and shot a couple and dude it was the coolest thing ever i mean mm. i was probably more excited shooting my first duck than i was my first deer and mm. hadn't stopped doing it since then what did you when you think back to that time what do you think was most helpful in setting you up and preparing you to be a guide today man definitely just times time in the woods and time on the water um being that i did it so much you know it kind of just was in my blood um pretty early on in life i knew i wanted to be a guide i didn't know if i wanted to guide hunting or fishing whatever i didn't i didn't know what i wanted to do and i fell in love with the fly fishing deal and i knew that's what i wanted to do and eventually got into the guide and duck hunts as well and you know, it, it gives you a nice change of pace. You're not just doing one thing all year. You know, you never really get burned out of either one of them. You just keep on rolling. Mm -hmm. Is there any lessons as you think back that your grandpa or your dad gave to you that you feel like are you carry with you today? Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. Um, <laughs> so I can remember being a little kid at, at a kid fish there on the Guadalupe River and I remember one time we were fishing and there wasn't any fish bite and so finally you know i reeled up my reeled up my rod and was running around terrorizing the other kids and grandpa come over there and he's like hey boy you can't catch them if your lure ain't in the water <laughs> so <laughs> that's that's one thing i always tell people um and then like one thing i remember my dad telling me one time is don't ever leave fish to find fish and so mm -hmm. i kind of that's always in the back of my mind uh, yeah, I've, I've, I've heard that one. Uh, I've heard one, that one a lot of times. And then also sometimes you're in a spot and you think it's really pretty and you're like, man, it looks right, but there's no fish, you know? Yeah. No and it, it's kind of the opposite <laughs> works too. It's like, it doesn't matter how good it looks. If the fish aren't here, we need to make a move. Yeah. Um, and I, I find myself a lot of times these days knowing like knowing I'm on fish at the moment, but just in the back of my head, I'm thinking, man, I might could remove right over there and there'd be a bunch more. <laughs> so, yeah. It's double edged sword. Yeah. Yeah. And I, um, I was, uh, on some fish the other day and we could see a bigger group and, you know, and we were kind of like, we we're on this smaller group of fish and I kind of found myself wanting to be on the bigger group and just instinctively, you know, and then I had to tell myself, you can only catch like one at a time. I mean, obviously you can <laughs> double up and stuff like, you know what I mean? But yeah. it's like, I'm, I'm, I'm not throwing three plugs all tied up together. You know, I'm just trying to catch one at a time, yeah, but it's yeah. kind of, I think that's instinctive in us to want to push and, you know, what's around that corner, what's over there, you know, the grass is greener, but also there's a little bit of wanting to explore, um, that I think is drives everybody into this no doubt no doubt you're always wondering what's around the next corner now for you did you go to college or did you not go to college no i didn't go to college um you know i, I kind of always hated school and mm -hmm. when i was when i was a freshman the oil field had really taken off in gonzales um there on the eagleford shell and that's kind of what i wanted to do and then luckily by the time I graduated that it all kind of petered out and so I just went straight into guiding and hadn't looked back since then so for you 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 wanted to go into you wanted to go in at one point into the oil field now I'm not like super familiar with that but how big of a jump was it mentally to go from 
I'm going to work in the oil field. I want to be a fishing guide. And kind of, how did you, how did you land on wanting to pursue being a fishing guide? Cause that's a, that's something that for a lot of people is a hard jump to take. Man, that was the easiest decision I've ever made in my life. I mean, hmm. in the back of my mind, I wanted to go be a guide, but the money in the oil field would have been hard to pass up at the time. But luckily, luckily it had petered out. And so I just hopped straight into guiding. And with that season for you, what, what what did your support system look like? Like, were your family, were they really supportive? How did you do with the guides? Unpack what the beginning for you looked like, because entering in at that age, that's one of the youngest ages I've heard uh, for entering into guiding as far as, you know, this younger generation. So what did that look yeah. like? Man, I mean, I had a ton of support. Um, one of my biggest mentors was a guy named Chuck Baldwin. He he lives here in Rockport, and on my days off, me and him would go fish together, and I learned a ton from him. Can't thank him enough for it. Um, but, man, my, I mean, my parents were a huge help as well. You know, they certainly helped me get my first boat. There was no way I could have afforded it straight out of high school. Um, so they got me in my first boat paid them off not long after and hadn't hadn't looked back since then and then with in in relation to um now you had mentioned kind of an older guide helping you what does all that look like for you as far as trying to carve your own path in in your area what does it look like for you to try to learn from certain people i know we have some mutual friends and i've seen you interact with with owen and those guys jt and What's all that look like for you? Yeah, so so Chuck Baldwin, he's not a guide. He's just a dude that loves to fish. And so mm -hmm. it, it really helped having him there because he, you know, he's been around guides his whole life. And so he kind of told me like, hey, you might not want to do that or you might, you might want to do this. So that was a huge help. But man, I mean, it's, I don't know. I'm, I guess you could say I'm a people person. And so like me and Owen, we get along real well love him like a brother mm -hmm. um me and jt we butted heads a little bit at first but now we eat dinner and play golf together all the time um mm. another one of my really good buddies drew donahue who's also a guy down here um he was a huge support from the from the get-go um he just he always looks at the at the bright side of things and so that always helped me out a lot hearing what he had to say if if there was a young guy that came to you and said, hey, what are some of the most important things for me to keep in mind as I build my business the first few years? What advice would you give to them? Keep your head down and don't listen to the bullshit that other people try to tell you. Just keep your head down and do your thing. And if it's meant to be, it'll work out. For you, was there a moment as you were getting started where you really realized, wow, this is going to work? Or did you always have a lot of confidence from the get-go? Man, I mean, I'm, I'm a pretty confident person. I was, I was pretty confident from the get-go, but I would say within like the first three or four months, things really started to take off and I was getting a lot of phone calls. And so that kind of, kind of gave me a, a grounding did you find a lot of discouragement early on and just some of the earlier when we were talking, you had mentioned just kind of, you know, early on, you know, you do some dumb things or 
you know, you make some mistakes. How did you work through some of the just typical early discouragement or dumb choices, uh, you know, starting off? Uh, man. I mean, I guess at the end of the day, all you can do is put the past behind you and keep on rolling. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't say I really did anything dumb. I would hear... I would hear about things that other guides had said about me and stuff like that and man they would always say it behind my back and I'd just go right up to them and basically tell them if they had something to say go ahead and say it and they pretty much put their head down and walked away and I kept on doing my thing. When you think back to your childhood and you know you said that you grew up hunting and fishing and and you wanted to become a guide in high school and that was kind of always in the back of your mind for you what were some of the most pivotal moments that you think really led you to to wanting to get out and do this as a career are there any stories or moments that really kind of lit a fire in you yeah so when i was i'm gonna say i was probably like 10 years old i went into the orvis store here in rockport for the first time and I met Dave Hayward who's the manager of the shop and man he just from the time we met to to today you know he's always helped me out with open arms and to see his enthusiasm in the sport of fly fishing really lit a fire under my ass to to really learn as much as I could about it and so that was a huge help just meeting Dave by coincidence and hearing hearing what he had to say about things and when when you talk about that fire being lit what did that look like and how did you try to kind of fan that flame and not get sucked into the money of the oil field or sucked into everybody goes to college or just all the different things that i feel like a lot of people have those moments i just meet so many people who they say, man, I thought about this. I wanted to do this. I had this dream to do this. And just something came in and, and you know, put that flame out. For you, what did that fire look like and how did you protect it? Man, I just, just seeing how, how enthused he was about the sport really led me to just, I mean, every day tying flies, do ch- trying different things with rods and reels, casting in the yard every day. Um, just really made me want to be the best that I could be at the sport and Mm. once I was finally old enough to get my own boat you know (laughs) that kind of led me into a whole new realm of learning as many different places as I can as I could fishing as much as I could and just trying to get better in that sense Mm. yeah take me back to getting your first boat how old were you what was it give me a rundown of of that i know that's for many people one of the most cherished memories yeah i want to say i was my first skiff anyways i want to say i was 14 and it was a maverick hpxt (laughs) at the time i want to say that thing was like 10 or twelve thousand dollars i mean you know it had been a sixty thousand dollar boat today so that Mm -hmm. was i guess that was a huge help as well coming into it at a time where where you could afford a nice boat Mm -hmm. Um, but man I mean I as soon as I got that boat you know I'd sit there in the garage all day polishing it and making it look (laughs) as nice as I could just couldn't wait to get out on the water again 
and would your dad just kind of drive you down and launch you or what did that look like yeah yeah the first few times that i took the boat out we were definitely together and then you know it wasn't long after that he was like all right go on do it on your own and man every weekend soon as i'd get out of high school me and a buddy or me and a buddy would come down here and just fish from sun up to sun down mm. and f- was that predominantly fly fishing at that point were you doing a little bit of everything i mean yeah it was all it was all fly fishing um you know from that time that i like i'd mentioned early earlier going into the orvis store and meeting dave from the time that happened dude i I can't even remember the last time i picked up a spinning rod it's it's been fly or die Mm -hmm. Uh, and did you play did you play baseball too some in high school no not in high school um i didn't I actually didn't play any sports in high school man all i wanted to do was hunt and fish at that point um i'd played a bunch of sports leading up to that mm-hmm. but once i you know once i got that first boat i just there wasn't anything else i wanted to do mm-hmm. you had mentioned um a couple people in the fishing industry that have been an inspiration to you who are some of the other people that you've tried to either model your life after or have inspired you as somebody who's young and kind of trying to really build build something special i mean jt has been one of my biggest mentors without a doubt um kevin townsend he's he's also been a huge help um but man honestly like like i said i've i've been doing the fly fishing deal for eight years and quite a few of the guides that are that are well known in my area now weren't even here then um i want to say at the time it was like me and jt and um our buddy drew he wasn't even he wasn't even guiding full time yet um but you know he's always somebody that i looked up to like i said earlier but just jt um i mean now that owen's here you know like i said owen's one of my best friends me and him Mm -hmm. me and him talk every day and when we are on the water together we're constantly sharing notes um yako love that dude to death he 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 keeps us he keeps us laughing 24 7 um that dude is freaking hilarious but man like i said uh, dave hayward chuck baldwin jt kt those guys have all been a huge help what what are some of the ways that you want to be like when you look at that group of of guys that you know you are friends with that you admire what are some of the things that you're you're trying to really make big priorities in your life as you try to grow older and, and do this thing long term man i'd say the main thing is keep doing new things and don't get burned out just keep keep trying different things and keeping that fire lit like you said earlier Hmm. as as a young guy what what what's been your biggest challenge the past eight years as you've tried to to build this out uh man i guess probably my age would be the main thing you know i guess i've heard like a lot of guys i'm sure they hear like oh he's only 26 like he can't know too much things i'm i guess things like that age would be the biggest thing Mm -hmm. how do you try to work around that 
man, just try to be the best that I can. Keep my keep my head down and keep rolling. <laughs> <laughs> what's what's your what's your favorite childhood memory with your grandpa or your dad fishing? Man, probably catching my first redfish on a fly rod. Um, I remember it like it was yesterday. It was just super cool. Um, and I, I really enjoy, you know, guiding people and getting them on their first redfish now because I know how happy it made me to do that. And so I want to share that feeling with everybody. Yeah, talk me through the story. Give me the give me the rundown. So it was a real calm morning, glass calm. Um, my dad and Dr. McKee, who is another mentor of mine, those two were out wade fishing for trout, you know, probably 150 or 200 yards off the shoreline. And I was up there walking parallel with the shoreline, just trying to see something tailing. And the tides were real high that day. It was kind of hard to see anything tailing or cruising. And it's still pretty early in the morning as well. So you didn't have enough light to see them cruising. And I saw this, saw this big blow up on a point and waded up to it. And man, just kind of stood there waiting for it to happen again and finally you know finally it seemed like it like it was a million years later redfish finally blew up again on the point and cast over there and as soon as the fly hit the water he just smoked it and i can i can remember that thing went in my backing pretty quick and i was reeling as fast as i could running after it trying to get close to it so it wouldn't get in the grass and finally got it to hand and it was it was a good one it was like 26 inches or something like that mm. I could see my dad. He had already gotten back to the boat. I could tell he was going to get a camera. So I met him halfway and snapped a picture and couldn't wait to get back over there and try to catch another one. Hmm. And and how how does that, when you think back to how special that was to you, how does that impact the way that you deal with clients or people who have never caught a redfish? Man, I know I try to be as patient as I can and work with them. Um, you know, a lot of people definitely don't practice as much as I did or anything like that. So a lot of clients that haven't caught their first redfish normally aren't the best casters and normally can't see fish that well. And so just being as patient as I can and understanding that, that they haven't done this very much helps a ton. And just, you know, it might take you 30 shots to finally get them one. But once you do, you know, mm -hmm. just they get that same feeling that I had. Mm -hmm. do you uh do a lot of photography with your clients is that something that you kind of have dabbled in or yeah you know i used to carry a dslr with me every day on the boat but man the iphones are so good now you know anything as far as holding a fish next to the boat or whatever you can do it just as good as with your iphone as you can a, a dslr and so I don't normally carry a camera with me that much anymore, but one of my favorite things to do is after duck season is over, you know, go go lay on the edge of a pond and try to get as close to the ducks as I can and get videos and pictures of them. Um, this year I was really fortunate. I got to photograph a blue wing cinnamon teal hybrid. And so that was super cool. That was, probably, that was definitely the coolest thing I've ever photographed. Um, and I mean, that sucker was like 20 feet from me. So I got some awesome pictures of him. Yeah. I found with, with a lot of guys, I mean, obviously 
cell phones have made certain types of photos a lot easier like just if you have good lighting and someone's sitting there with a fish you can get a great photo on an iphone but i found a lot of guys especially younger kind of the younger generation have been gravitating towards wanting to take that higher end photo for their clients or just enjoying doing what you said kind of the hunt of trying to get a shot of a tailing redfish or trying to get a shot of a certain animal in the wildlife whatever it may be for for you um is that something that you've leaned really heavy into i mean is it something or you're saying that you don't really have to take it out every day yeah i mean like most days when i'm guiding clients i'm more focused on that than trying to get a picture of a tailing fish or something like that um Mm -hmm. most of the time when i'm doing the photography stuff i'm out there with another buddy and you know i let him go off and wade fish on his own trying to catch redfish and i'll i'll go the opposite way and try to find some tailing so i can get pictures of them um Mm -hmm. but the the duck deal you know i'm doing that out on public land and so i'm i normally just go by myself and lay down in the grass and try to get as many of them in in onto the pond as i can and and just try to be real stealthy so most of the time when i do the waterfowl photography i don't take anyone with me but Mm -hmm. and then i like i said the fishing stuff i normally have somebody with me that's fishing while i go and go off and do that on my own Hmm. now with a lot of peers in the industry hunting and fishing as somebody who's trying to do things the right way what are some mistakes that you see a lot of people that are around your age making in in the industry or maybe just people who are newer to the industry that you might be able to share man you know a lot of new people in the in the industry they're just not very secretive about what they're doing and so they might go fish over here at a certain area you know and they can't wait to get home and post their picture and tag the location that they were at and like the cool thing to me about it is I, I want to be somewhere where nobody knows where the hell I'm at. And so it's just one of those things that I don't really understand is why people share locations that much. Um, but man, I mean, I haven't met a whole lot of up and comers that are, that are per se disrespectful. Um, most of them are pretty pretty respectful and want to learn from people that have been doing it longer than them Mm -hmm. for you i know you do a little bit of travel also you just came back from a trip to mexico what have some of the trips been that you've done the past eight or so years and how those factored in are they vacations do you find yourself learning a lot from them how does the travel aspect kind of fit into your life yeah, you know, my girlfriend, Sierra, she loves to to hunt and fish as well. And so that helps a ton. Me and her try to go, you know, we'll go fish Florida with, like last year we fished, or no, this year we fished with Deanie. Last year we fished with Brian Helms. Um, I mean, those two guys are as good as it gets. And so we, every time we go with them, we learn a ton. Um, last year we also went to Los Locos and did the striped marlin and rooster fish deal. And that was also really cool. I mean, that's something you can't see anywhere else but right there. And so getting to getting to see those fish and what they do was, was awesome. I mean, seeing those big marlin, 
marlin, dorado, wahoo, seals, birds. Dude, that water's so clear. You can see everything under the water on those bait balls. And, I mean, that was definitely one of, if not the coolest thing I've ever seen. If you haven't done that trip, it's something you've definitely got to do. Hmm. If you were giving a pitch to somebody who's young, who's like, it's just easy to make excuses. I don't got the money. I don't have the time, etc. What do you think is the biggest takeaway that people get from going to new places and doing stuff like that? I mean, like, I've got the luxury of being able to go with the best guides there are and go into some of the coolest places there are. But if you if you put the time in and do your research, I mean, there's definitely ways that you can go do those things for a lot less money. I mean, Mexico, you know, there's always some guy standing next to his panga waiting to take somebody out for a little bit of cash. And so, I mean, you can kind of put the... Well, how should I say this? Um, I mean, I guess I guess when you go on trips that aren't in your hometown or your or your area that you're used to, you know, you can hire somebody and kind of just have them take you out and drive the boat while you tell them like, hey, I think we should go over here and check out this spot I learned on Google or saw on Google. And, you know, you can go explore other places without having to mm-hmm. just go to a lodge or go fish with a guide. You can go go do that on your own. As you uh, look into the future and think about areas that you want to improve or things that you want to add into what you're doing, what are some of the goals or growth areas that you have that you're really wanting to push into the next decade? You know, there's since I was a kid to now, the amount of boat traffic on the water in Texas is just absolutely insane. When I was a kid, fishing on fishing from monday to thursday you know you might not see another boat the whole day and now if there's less than if you see less than 20 boats at times you're doing good so i think one of the most important things is trying to teach others to be respectful i mean there's you know you might be pulling a shoreline and a wade fisherman pulls 100 yards in front of you and drops his anchor and hops out of the boat and starts wading the opposite direction just i think we need more respect on the water that's that's the biggest thing um some of the stuff i see out there just absolutely blows my mind i don't know why people would do it when you uh think about what success looks like for you if you can imagine you know you're you're at the end of life you're sitting around having a beer looking back at all the the years to you what what does success look like in the end in the end i would say success would look like doing something that that will preserve something for the future generations um chuck neiser he when he you know he still guides a little bit but on his days off he he started this organization called flats worthy and they helped a ton with like stopping the oyster boats from just absolutely raping our reefs and he's done a lot of stuff to help protect the seagrass and and stuff like that and so you know i think i think doing something like that when i'm done guiding would be super cool Mm -hmm. um 
you know, hope, hopefully Chuck does all the dirty work and I don't have to do anything and I can <laughs> figure out my own deal to do, but <laughs> uh, something like that to help, help preserve for the future generations. Mm. Now, before we, we wrap it up, I know we get, we got a mutual friend with, well, I guess you're, you got a couple friends who have been on the podcast, but Owen Gaylor, who's quite the character do you have any good yeah. owen owen gaylor <laughs> stories that you can share that maybe you know just be mindful that you know there are uh you know there are uh some stories that probably need to be left off the air but <laughs> what, what can you uh what can you, you got any good owen stories for us man honestly i just i don't understand how that guy's boat doesn't blow up or how he doesn't get in a wreck on the way to the boat ramp every day i mean he's, i love him to death but he's always forgetting something forgetting to fill his boat up forgetting to charge his trolling motor um i would say one of the funniest things that i've seen owen do is he did not through bolt his trolling motor and so one day he was out there fishing and his damn trolling motor ripped out of the deck and he was like he's like i don't know why the hell it ripped out i I got plenty of bolts in it and I'm like, Oh, and your fucking bolts are half an inch long. What do you expect? (laughs) (laughs) That was, Uh, that was a good one. But uh, I mean that dude, did he lose the whole thing or did it, was he able to at least (laughs) do a little, little aquatic recovery? No, it it hung on there and he tried to tie it. You know, he's getting in the water trying to tie it on. (laughs) It didn't work. He, I finally, his guy that was fishing with him hopped on my boat and, we finished out the day man yeah he's he's definitely he's definitely a character if people haven't listened to his (laughs) podcast they need to go back and check that out but yeah man i've really enjoyed just getting to hear a little bit about what you're doing and your perspective and i appreciate you sitting down man i look forward to duck hunting together again i'm definitely gonna grab a couple days here soon and i i appreciate the time yeah man i appreciate you having me on here and I also look forward to sharing a blind or a skiff with you as soon as possible. Um, I really appreciate what you're doing with your podcast, getting people out there so others can hear their stories. I think it's super cool, and I I appreciate it. I look forward to hearing everybody else that comes on there. Thanks again for checking out the show. It'd mean a lot if you would help us out by spreading the word about what we're doing. We appreciate the support. Thanks for listening. This is the Captain's Collective.